There's the immediate, the health inequities that we need to be focusing on, but we need to be putting in place now measures so that in three years' time, we're not seeing a world where we have wider income inequality, wider gender inequality. Health is you know, top of mind today, but we need to be planning for all the dimensions. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Disparities in who gets COVID-19 and now who gets vaccinated continue to be a striking feature of the pandemic. Around the country, wealthier whites are getting vaccinated at higher rates than BIPOC communities. This disparity is also evident in Vermont. As Vermont Digger reported this week, 9% of white Vermonters have received the vaccine, while just 6% of black Vermonters and only 2% of Native American Vermonters have been vaccinated. To discuss this and more, we're joined by Natalia Linos, a social epidemiologist and executive director at Harvard's FXB Center for Health and Human Rights. Previously, she worked internationally with the UN Development Program and as a science advisor in the commissioner's office at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Natalia Linos, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much for having me, David. There are so many dimensions of disparity and inequality when it comes to COVID, uh, first from who dies to now who is getting the vaccine. So I wonder if you could just, as somebody who really studies this, what stands out to you as we speak in February 2021 as the most stark and most important indicators of disparity? So David, as a social epidemiologist, as someone who looks at the patterns of disease distribution, it's not surprising that we have inequities in this country because of our history, because of our legacy of racism, because of our deep economic inequality, that we're seeing disparities in terms of who is getting sick and then once sick, who is dying. Those are stark and to me still some of the the ones we should be talking about the disparities in vaccine access are now, you know, on everybody's radar, both in the U.S. but also from the global level. But beyond that, you know, I'm, I'm speaking as a health expert. I worry about the long-term inequalities on many other dimensions. You know, education. I read somewhere that 45% of kids in Nigeria have not had any education since March of last year. You know, what does that mean about the long term? Um, if we're thinking about education, who gets to go back to work? You know, once we see this economic recovery, I think there will be disparities there. So there's the immediate, the health inequities that we need to be focusing on. But we need to be putting in place now measures so that in three years time, we're not seeing a world where we have deep, you know, wider income inequality, wider um, gender inequality. You know, as, as a mom of three young kids, I worry about women being pulled out of the workforce. There's so many different dimensions. And so health is you know, top of mind today, but we need to be planning for all the dimensions. Well, let's talk about the issue of the impact on women. And we are seeing now reports of really catastrophic setbacks for women. Um, can you just talk about that a, a little bit? Why and how there is this disproportionate impact of the pandemic on women? Sure. So, and I think we need to say women of color have been hit even harder than, than white women. But let me just speak from personal experience. I am a mom of a seven-year-old and three-year-old twins. Uh, when schools closed in March, suddenly we had you know three kids at home and gender norms, whether you live in the most uh, equal household, if you are in you know uh, 
you know, often, often moms are the ones that kids come to for, for everything, for asking to help get dressed, going to the bathroom, changing clothes. But it's not only that, it's not just gender norms. In many, many household dynamics, women make less money. So if somebody has to stay home to take care of the kids because of the inequity that we know in terms of paid, um, you know, the pay gap, uh, if you are uh, a man and a woman in a household, and that is a big if, because, you know, we have a lot of single um, single mom households. We also have a lot of, you know, same sex households. But in in, in sort of the that scenario of, of two parents, um, the, the one with a bigger income often is the one who's going to stay and the other one will take time off to stay home. So that, you know, we're seeing many different dimensions of inequality and, and gender sort of discrimination playing out so that women are being more likely to stay home to do the, you know, childcare and the homeschooling. So that's a big factor. There are probably other factors too, in terms of which um, types of jobs got hit hard. The one benefit is that healthcare, you know, it is actually gendered. You have a lot more women in the caregiving space. So those women were essential. So they kept their jobs, but in other spaces, um, you know, they weren't. And, and then again, a level of, of privilege that we don't think about is who is kind of an office worker who can work from home remotely um, and who has to be working from spaces. And if you were thinking about domestic work or other sort of work um, or even restaurants, waitressing, you know, those are people who are women who have been hit harder, not because they were able to stay home, but because they had to go into the workplace. So they were hit harder from the disease perspective. Let's talk about the who is getting vaccinated now. So um, there is now a new focus on uh, equity and racial justice in terms of vaccination, but that doesn't mean the disparities are not repeat, recreating themselves now that we're in the stage of vaccinating people. Um, the you know the pandemic has, as you've mentioned, has has ravaged low income and communities of color. But in many states, we're seeing now vaccines are going to wealthier white patients. Uh, this is also the case in Vermont. There are disparities. A recent study from the Vermont Health Department showed that uh, 9% of white Vermonters have received the vaccine, while only 6% of black Vermonters uh, and only 2% of uh, Native American Vermonters. Um, Explain why and how this disparity is being recreated now in the vaccination stage. Yeah, David, it's really important to highlight and also to highlight that we actually don't have great data. We have data from some states and about 50% of the data is missing, you know, the value. So there was a big push early on in the pandemic to ensure that we had data on mortality by race. I think there should similarly be a call right now that we are collecting data on vaccinations because we might see actually even starker inequities than what you've just said. So why is this happening? There are <clears throat> different sort of elements to think about. One is eligibility criteria, right? So when you think about eligibility, you often think this is a race-blind decision. But eligibility, one of the biggest factors that people have used as an eligibility criteria is age. And they've said, you know, 75 plus get to be vaccinated first in many, many states. Well, if you look at the data, about half the people um, who are people of color who have died from this pandemic were under 75. But the number, or under 65, I think, but the percent of whites under 65 who died, it's only 10%. So age, by definition, 
embeds a level of inequity. So that because we know that people of color have been dying at younger ages, that's because they're more likely to be in the essential jobs that are high risk, you know, working in meatpacking, working in grocery stores. The fact that you haven't put essential workers at the top of your eligibility, but you've put age at the top, by definition, um, shifts who gets access to it first by putting more white Americans in that pile. So one is eligibility. The other piece is actually access. So in many states, in Massachusetts, for example, people have to get their vaccines by logging on to a very cumbersome web application. And, you know, who has first the time, who has the know-how, who has, you know, if you think about the digital divide, who has a son or a daughter who doesn't work two or three jobs. So there's an embedded access issue in terms of just getting yourself a, a, an appointment. And the third is access in terms of geography. We know that, um, you know, in terms of people of color, especially poor Americans might not have access to a car. And if you have to drive to a big stadium and it's a drive-through vaccine, you know, process, you're already automatically excluding people. So it's layer after layer after layer, starting from eligibility to access to getting the appointment to access to actually showing up to your appointment. And then some people are talking about hesitancy and I, I think it's important, but it's not number one. So communities of color, especially black Americans who have experienced a lot of discrimination in the healthcare system may feel a little hesitant around getting the vaccine. And that itself is also something that uh, we're not doing you know, we didn't invest enough in the community connections and the building the relationships to ensure that people didn't feel hesitant today. So all of that compounds to the fact that, you know, we have lower rates of vaccination among the communities who need it most. So is there a better way to do this than the uh, age banding that is so typical? So the reason why people are using age is because uh, modelers have suggested that that would save the most lives right? It's a very clear cut, like the chance of dying if you get COVID and you're over 75 is way higher than the chance of dying if you're 50. If you're 50, though, and you are Native American, your chance of dying might be the same as a 75-year-old white person. It, that's the data that, at least at the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights, um, my colleague Justin Feldman has done some of these analyses, and, and he shows kind of the comparator. You know, a 60-year-old Latina woman has the same chance of dying as an 85-year-old white man. So some people have said, you know, you could cross-tab the two, race, geography, um, age. Why people are doing age is that it's simple in, you know, many ways. But, uh, you know, the, the director of the center I lead, Mary Bassett, says it's simple but wrong. The problem is where the U.S. has been highlighted among other countries as doing particularly bad in terms of speed. So a lot of states and a lot of kind of, you know, politicians have in my mind taken the easy way out and said, okay, let's just get as many people possible the vaccine and age is clear, it's easy, let's just do it that way. Um, but we are suffering because of that. So I, I do think that there are ways to, to embed equity and Massachusetts has done some interesting things. For example, um, ensuring that when you're talking about congregate settings, so vaccinating nursing homes, you're also vaccinating prisons and jails, also vaccinating, you know, places where people with intellectual disabilities are, are living. So you're not only prioritizing one type of congregate setting, because we know that because of our you know, criminal legal system, 
you will find more black and brown Americans in prisons and jails. And obviously that's a completely different conversation and that is wrong. But because of the structural racism in our criminal legal system, if you also exclude prisons and jails from your vaccination policy, you're disproportionately excluding uh, black and brown Americans. Do you worry that if there is some prioritization based on ethnicity or race, that there could be a backlash? Yes, and I don't actually think we should be prioritizing by by race or ethnicity. Both a backlash, um, but also a skepticism. You know, the way that experimentation has happened on on you know black bodies. You know, there might be like, why are they experimenting? You know, is this is this another form of experimentation? So that's not what I'm suggesting. The way to do it is to think about uh, risk outside of the age categories, risk of getting sick. So employment. I do think that you know the fact that. Um, a lot of the essential workers have been dropping down the line. That is a problem. So bringing back some of the essential workers um, to the top of the line could be one aspect. The other is neighborhood. And I've, I've seen, for example, in New York City, in the Bronx, there's one uh, new big sort of site and saying you have to be a resident of the Bronx. So what we're seeing in some states is they will open up a vaccine clinic in communities that have been hardest hit, but it's you know white, wealthy Americans from neighboring communities that are coming and lining up. So some sort of neighborhood, um, you know, level, which is not saying that you know if you're white and poor and live in this neighborhood, you too should get vaccinated because chances are you too are working an essential job that puts you at risk. So it's not um, discriminating or determining eligibility by race, but by occupation or residence or the fact that you are at higher risk for other reasons. We're seeing teachers such as in Chicago, you know, demanding that they be moved up in the priority list because they are frontline workers essentially, although they are not necessarily categorized that way. What's your feeling about that? And I know some of this runs up against the issue of availability. There just may not be enough vaccines. Yeah, and that's a separate conversation, David, and we should have it because at the global level, there simply isn't enough. And I think, you know, putting every pressure on pharmaceutical companies to either share, you know, I, I heard that Sanofi is now going to be producing the, the Pfizer uh, vaccine, you know, using kind of whatever resources we have to expand uh, production is really, really critical. And that includes having conversations around intellectual property and lifting some of those really stringent ways so that we can get enough vaccine. Because the data suggests that if we continue at the rate that we're vaccinating globally, it will take over six years to get us to 75% coverage in the rest of the world. And that is simply unacceptable. But to your point about teachers, I mean, teachers, it's it's really political and it's really sensitive issue because, you know, as I told you, I'm a parent and for parents, we are struggling. We are struggling in real ways. My, my seven-year-old is in a hybrid model, two days in school, three days at home, but other parents have had their kids home the whole time. We are not experts on how to teach. We want schools to open. We want schools to open safely. The data suggests that schools are not hotspots, but there is always risk. So I understand teachers feeling you know, reluctant saying, you know, I'm not, I didn't sign up to be a nurse or a doctor. I don't want to take on that risk. Like once schools are safe, I will go back in. So number one is ensuring that schools are safe and whether that's ventilation, making sure the buildings are safe, making sure teachers have access to PPE. Vaccination would be great, uh, but I don't think it is an essential element. Um, I think, you know, we just need to figure out a way to make sure that teachers feel safe. Um, 
if you were looking just at the data and saying, you know, should teachers be prioritized? Many public health people would say probably not. You know, they're generally younger, maybe healthier. Um, they're not up close with potential people who are sick. I mean, the kids may be sick, but, you know, they're not as, you know, in your face, you know, as you, as you would be if you were like a dentist. Um, but, you know, they serve a purpose, a real purpose, schools. And the social cost of not having schools open, in my mind, um, suggests that we should consider vaccinating them first in order to have the social benefit, primarily that gender inequality and, and losing women from the workforce benefit. So the issue has come up, and you just referenced it, about uh, the global inequities and the fact that, you know, we are almost blinded here in our conversation about getting it around the U.S. Um, but you are somebody, you worked for the United Nations, you worked globally. So, you know, if the U.S. succeeds in vaccinating a very high percentage of its people, but the world doesn't, from an epidemiologist's point of view, what does that look like uh, if in on the globe the virus is still circulating widely and wildly in other parts of yeah. the world, even though we've gotten vaccinated? It continues posing a risk to us. You know, so from a very um, selfish perspective, we need to be getting vaccines distributed across the globe because as we have seen with these new strains, you know, the vaccine that we are getting and we're going to you know, give to all our population may not work for all the strains. The more the virus kind of spreads and out of control spreads, you know, viruses mutate. The bigger chances there are that there will be a new one that won't be covered by the vaccine. So we will never be truly safe. There is no way to really close down our borders. You know, small countries like New Zealand um, have been able to eradicate COVID and they will keep their borders closed. But New Zealand is is both small in size. It's really remote. You know, you can't get there other than by flight. So it's different. The U.S. simply cannot imagine that we can vaccinate our people and then, you know, that's the end of the story. So it is in the best interest of our country to ensure that that vaccines are available. I don't think they're going to be available in order to get sort of herd immunity around the world. But as long as, say, every country has its healthcare providers um, and professionals vaccinated, which is WHO's first goal. By the middle of this year, they hope that the rest of the world has at least 3% of its population vaccinated. They're essential healthcare workers. That means that their healthcare system won't collapse. If there's a collapse of healthcare systems across the world, the, the virus will go completely unchecked. And that is a risk everywhere. So I think at a minimum, at a very, very bare minimum, we need to make sure that healthcare workers everywhere in the world have access to the vaccine today, you know, now. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Natalia Linos. She is executive director of the Harvard FXB Center for Health and Human Rights. Uh, epidemiologists have been um, much more visible and present in the public discourse and the political discourse of late. Um, I think for a lot of people, it's the first time they have known what an epidemiologist does. Um, I have the benefit that I have a brother who's an epidemiologist, so I know what they do. But um, you took this a step further. Uh, you ran for Congress. Uh, tell me a little bit about your own reasons for entering the political arena in such a direct way. Sure. So, David, in maybe February of last year, um, I started 
talking to journalists like yourself. Um, I had an interview with the New York Times about poverty globally and how COVID was going to exacerbate it. I was writing pieces with other social epidemiologists trying to raise the alarm um, early March before we had even any recorded deaths. Now we know we had, but at the time we wrote a piece, myself and Dr. Mary Bassett, about the racial inequities we've been talking about and calling on the government to take a very targeted uh, approach to equity in their response because we could have first the worst uh, epidemic of any wealthy country because of our deep-rooted inequities and also that it would hit hardest on communities of color and immigrant communities. And at, at some point by April, it felt that I was talking and writing and calling and nothing was changing. In fact, President Trump pulled us out of the World Health Organization in the midst of a global pandemic. It felt that it was political in a way that you could not, as a social epidemiologist, make change. So my congressional district had an open seat. There were good candidates running. In normal circumstances, I probably wouldn't have run. But it felt that Congress as a whole, with maybe a couple of doctors, a couple of health professionals, but no epidemiologists, we were just failing Americans, failing to provide the adequate um, support when we were saying we're going to shut down, failing to provide, you know, people with paid leave so they don't need to go to work when they're sick, failing to provide income support, everything that social epidemiologists are trained around. So it felt urgent, it felt necessary, it felt that I had a skill set. And my global perspective, you know, having worked at the UN for a decade was also important. So I thought to myself, you know, if there's ever a time for someone with global experience, plus training in epidemiology, this is the time to enter politics. There is no other, like this is the moment. Um, I wasn't successful, but I do think I was able to change the conversation and get a lot of ideas out. So I, I'm really happy uh, I ran. What did you learn from uh, entering a very different arena than the one you'd been operating in all these years? So the one thing is that there is an appetite for scientists, for people with my background, a different kind of, you know, training to enter politics. Um, you know, your typical person running for Congress has either gone through local level politics, you know, run for student council or in their town kind of legislation and kind of moves up, or they're a successful lawyer, but you don't find too many scientists. You don't find people with, you know, STEM backgrounds. But what I found is that actually people were really excited to, to get behind a scientist. They felt that my campaign was less uh, political, that I wasn't sort of a career person that was just kind of ticking the boxes, but that I was there to serve, that it was a moment. And so that was really reassuring. You know, I started my campaign with a small group of 20 volunteers. The majority of them were public health PhDs who were excited that one of us was stepping in. You know, many of them were feeling the same frustration. Uh, and it grew to, you know, 400 volunteers who had passions from climate change to racial justice, and that they felt that a science-based approach to policymaking um, was critical. And that, you know, having people at the table where legislation is being discussed versus bringing experts in once you've already made up your mind, that it would make a difference of, in terms of priorities about where budgets would go in terms of, you know, a data-driven approach. So what I learned was that people were excited to get behind my profile. And, you know, I only had four months, other candidates had been running for over a year and I had, uh, you know, 400,000 other candidates had, you know, 3 million. So clearly there was an inequity in terms of um, ability, time and, and fundraising. And that's a completely different conversation, but I think scientists would have a hard time fundraising because we don't have, you know, multi-million dollar friends in, from our law firms to, to donate type things. Um, but I learned that people are interested. 
What is your feeling? We're only a few weeks into the Biden administration, but what is your sense right now of how they are dealing with the pandemic and uh, how does it leave you feeling hopeful or do the inequities that you study leave you feeling still quite pessimistic? Listen, I'm definitely hopeful. I think uh, Biden and the administration has taken COVID very seriously. Um, they've set a goal of vaccinating a million and a half Americans every day. They have expanded, um, you know, they've given kind of the scientists in the uh, CDC and other places the, the respect that they deserve. It's not going to be easy. I'm not, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to overnight turn things around, but I think there is a lot to be optimistic about with this administration. And I do believe that equity is going to feature more centrally um, in their plans. And I do believe, you know, I, I saw a report recently that 180 public health um, officials from local and state kind of senior leadership have quit or been fired during this pandemic. This is unprecedented in the whole history of the U.S. We're going to have to rebuild our public health infrastructure. And I do think Biden and this administration will at least give scientists the respect they need, the uh, distance from political interference, and hopefully the financial resources to really build back better. Well, Natalia Linos, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Natalia Linos is the executive director of the Harvard FXB Center for Health and Human Rights. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.